Advent season, and we're beginning a series um, of teaching from the Gospel of Matthew. Um, if you've if you're visiting with us, this is a great place to start and and uh, and uh, just keep coming back. Um, it's going to take me at least three years to get through this book. So, um, but uh, we are we're excited about we're excited about what God is doing at Bedford Road and. Um, and we're, we wanted to take this season and use it as a, as a beginning of exploring the Gospel of Matthew. And, and so I'm going to give you a little bit of background about the Gospel. Um, I'm actually in, in the middle of writing up a bunch of other stuff that will go along with this that we'll put on the website so that um, we're not overloading you. Um, I, I have a tendency to be a little bit of a fire hose. Um, there's a lot of things that really, really engage my weird brain um, that sometimes are interesting and sometimes are just weird. Um, but, uh, but this is, uh, for me, this is a, a, a really... Um, an opportunity for us to kind of read both more broadly the Gospel of Matthew and to read it more closely. Um, the Gospels are a uh, are extraordinary, and because we have them and they're in our Bibles and they're kind of in the middle, kind of you know two thirds of the way through, I think sometimes we forget how extraordinary they really are. The Gospel, a Gospel, the Greek word in Evangelion. Um, is a uh, completely Christian way of telling a story or a narrative. It, it borrows pieces from um, Jewish culture, um, particularly what we call Second Temple Judaism. It borrows from Roman culture and Greek rhetoric. and um, It borrows from the context of the world. And it, it takes history about Jesus, about the Messiah, the Christ, the, the founder of the church, the firstborn of the resurrection, all of the titles that he gets in the Bible. But it takes the history of his time here on earth and it uses it um, to create for us a, a space, a, an environment where we can see what God has been doing through all of human history and time. And, and in seeing that, we are able to see what he is doing in us in the church. Each one of the four Gospels is a little bit different. Um, each one has kind of its own take on things. Uh, the, the Gospel of Matthew, um, I call Matthew the Gospel of the Exiled King, and we're going to talk about that um, in the Gospel of Mark, um, Jesus, is, uh, Jesus is very much the healer and teacher in the Gospel of Luke, um, not only is he the healer, but he is also um, the answer to the problems of the world. He is, um, he is a, a healer, he is savior, he is he's really put in, in contrast to the powers and authorities of the Roman world. In the Gospel of John, he is the word, he is the light, and, and John is, is deeply theologically rich and, and extraordinary. Each gospel gives a little bit of a different perspective on Jesus. Each one presents Jesus in a little bit of a different way. And modern commentators in their um, arrogance, they say, well, we look at the gospels and we see differences in the gospels and therefore we can tell that these were, uh, these were kind of fictionalized accounts of Jesus. 
I've always found that argument fascinating because it always comes from people that believe that the church was this ultra-powerful hierarchical control over people's religious thoughts. Would an organization so devoted to control leave obvious contradictions in their authoritative text? No. They would make sure that that was all gone. They would make sure it was complete and uniform. Totalitarians, dictators, they make sure you know the story, every single piece of it, exactly the way they want you to know it. And yet the four Gospels, they, they tell events in different places. They have different accounts of things. They, um, they present uh, different scenarios and situations, different perspectives. Matthew's perspective, this first Gospel, Matthew's perspective is one of someone who came to faith in Christ out of uh, out of what we call Galilean Judaism. And he is faced with challenges because um, as a as a follower of Christ, he is in somewhat in opposition to the institutions of Judaism. Um, as a as a Galilean, he is kind of ridiculed as being kind of this backcountry um, oddball. As a as a uh, as a disciple of Jesus, he's facing opposition from every possible way. On top of that, we we find out later in the book of Matthew that he was actually a tax collector. So not only was he not popular with Jews um, and popular unpopular with people in Jerusalem, he also wasn't even popular with the people he worked for as a tax collector because the Romans hated their own tax collectors. They thought they were scum of the earth. But when Matthew sits down to tell us about Jesus, he creates something extraordinary. He creates a book that structure is so intricate that we almost always miss it. We read the narrative of Matthew and we go, this is the story of Jesus. It starts with his birth, it ends with his resurrection. Straightforward, we got it all under control, we know all the details. Right, we can fill it in. What Matthew actually does in the gospel, he um he creates a what we call a ring composition. If you imagine kind of like an onion, ogres are onions. Um, if you there there's a joke that didn't age well. Um, if you think about an onion and the layers of an onion, or um, the the kind of that old drawing of what a what the solar system looked like with all the planets and circles. Matthew is built. Um, there's an outer shell, and then inner shells inside, until you get to the very core of his gospel, the very core of Jesus's teachings. And as he works his way in from chapter one in through the first twelve chapters. Um, he he is he he's peeling away these layers, and then as he works his way out, chapter 13 is the center. If he works his way out, 14 to 28, he works his way back out, and the way that he structures the way he tells the story of Jesus, he he looks for uh, symmetries, things that are similar. Let me give you quick illustrations. All right, uh, I already mentioned Emmanuel at the beginning. And then Jesus gives the commission in 28. Um, so God is with us, and then Jesus says, Lo, I'm with you always, even until the end of the earth. Um, 
if we start at the outside, we actually, in, Gen in, in Matthew 1, 1, we read this line, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, simple sentence, right? And yet, who is Abraham? Abraham is the father of nations. In Genesis, the, the, God actually says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. He says, you have become a witness to the nations. Later on, the prophets will say that Israel was meant to be a light to the nations. And Jesus will actually quote that verse in Matthew. And then we look all the way at the end in Matthew 28. And Jesus is given the commission. And he says, lo, I'm with you even until the ends of the earth. He says, um, so he says, go. Therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And you can see all kinds of parallels that are going on. There's, there's that what we call imperfect symmetries. There's a uh, at the beginning, there's a king Herod who wants to kill Jesus. At the a ruler who is uh, basically trying Jesus, trying to decide whether Jesus is worthy to live or die. And at the end, there's a Roman ruler Pontius Pilate who is trying Jesus, trying to decide whether Jesus should live or die. At the beginning, there's a, a council of magi who come from Persia uh, looking for the king of the Jews. And then at the end, there's a council of Jews arguing with Jesus over whether he's their king. See, Matthew has this intricate ring composition. We can see these imperfect symmetries all over the place. So I hope you'll indulge me because I'm going to nerd out all over this. Because although John is my favorite biblical author, I love John's style. I love his use of Greek rhetoric and all that stuff. Matthew has this fascinating approach to Jesus. And, and we're going to spend some time talking about it. So I'm going to invite you to join me. That was all introduction. I'm going to invite you to join me. Word of prayer. We're going to start in Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. Jesus, we have come here to know you and you alone. And now as we turn our hearts and our minds to the gospel, the very message by which your Holy Spirit calls us to you. May we know you. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. The book of the generations or the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The Greek word translated genealogy or generation, by the way, is the word Genesis. It's actually the word Genesis, the beginning. We might render this, this is the book of the origin of Jesus Christ, where Jesus came from, where the church comes from, where all of our beliefs are rooted in this one person, this one Man, this one Christ, this one son of David, son of Abraham. Now, we know Jesus' name, Yeshua, means salvation in Hebrew. Christ, Christos, is, means anointed one. So it's the story of Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, right? 
And that's a that's pretty straightforward. But then Matthew decides to open with a dual sonship. This is such an interesting moment. Every gospel opens differently. Mark opens with, let's just get this started, and dives right in. Luke opens with other people. He's like, well, you know, Mary had a cousin, and the cousin was married to a priest. Let me tell you a story about this. John is like, in the beginning, the word. Majestic and powerful. Matthew goes, okay, let's start at the beginning. And he says, the Christ is the son of David. What does that mean? It means he is the king. The king of Israel, the king of Judah, the king of Jerusalem. Jesus is the claimant to the throne, the eternal throne promised to David in 2 Samuel that there would never be a time when one of his descendants was not sitting on the throne. But he was the king of a kingdom that for 600 years had not had a king. Jehoiachin, we talked about him a couple weeks ago. Jehoiachin um, ruled for three months and then his uncle Zedekiah became king and he ruled for 11 years and then he tried to escape the Babylonians. The Babylonians killed his kids in front of him, then blinded him. That's a Bible story for kids to learn. Um, and, and then Jehoiachin is taken into prison and he goes to Babylon and there is not another king of the line of David in the history of Israel. That's around 600 B.C. There's a governor, Zerubbabel, we're going to mention him. And then, uh, you know, a, a couple centuries before Jesus, there was a, a group of priests, and um, we call them the Hasmoneans or the Maccabeans. They're the, they're the guys at the back of the story of Hanukkah. Um, and uh, it's a group of brothers, and, and they fight off a Greek ruler named Antiochus, and they establish themselves as a king with the help of the Romans. But they're not descended from the son of David. They're, they're not children of David. They're, they're from different tribes, they're, and they're, they're not that great of kings. And then the last of the Hasmoneans is this guy named Herod that we'll encounter in the next chapter. And Herod is one of the richest people in the Roman world, and he gets his title, King of the Jews, from the Roman Senate. He's actually buddies first with Mark Antony, and then with Octavius, who becomes Caesar Augustus. He is literally one of the richest people in the world. He builds the Jerusalem Temple, which is one of the marvels of the ancient world, the second largest man-made structure in the world at the time, second only to the Temple of Karnak in Egypt. He sponsors the Olympic Games. Surely Herod is a worthy king. But he's not descended from David. So Matthew says, Jesus is the son of David. All of the hopes of the Hebrew scriptures wrapped into a single title, the son of David. The descendant, the one to whom the blessings and the covenants and the power and the authority of the kingship of this lost kingdom now passes. But not just the son of David. The son of Abraham. Well, that's a whole other ball of wax. That's something else entirely. The son of Abraham. Abraham, the one who was called out of his father's homeland to wander. The writer, the writer of Hebrews says that he sought for a city whose builder and foundation was God. Who, who traveled, he became the sojourner, the wanderer, the, the, the migrant chieftain who, who would uh, spend his entire life wandering what today we call Palestine or Israel or the Levant. 
a shepherd king with an army at his disposal that's able to fight against the Babylonians, a, 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 a sometimes faithless but always, um, always determined father. The Hebrew word av means father. God calls him Avraham, the father of many nations. He gives him blessings. He gives him covenants. He says, your sons will be like the stars of the sky. They will be like the grains of sand on the beach. They will be countless. And and they will be a blessing to the world. In fact, they will be a blessing to all nations. And so not only is Jesus the son of David, the rightful king of the house of David, the ruler of Jerusalem, the one that should be sitting on the throne, but he's also the son of Abraham. He's the son of the covenant. He's the son of the promise. He's the son. uh, He is the inheritor of all the expectations for all the world. Matthew sets a pretty lofty expectation for this guy. He better live up to it. You see, he says in verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Minadab. And Amminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asaph. Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Uram. Uram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Yotham. Yotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amos. Amos, the father of Josiah. Josiah, the father of Yeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And then after the deportation to Babylon, Yeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiod. Abiod, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Eliod. Eliod, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Matthew, in 16 verses, covers 1,800 years. Or four breaths. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, Matthew creates another one of his imperfect symmetries right there. He gives us three generations that bear witness to Jesus as the son of David, the son of Abraham, At the end, there will be three days in the grave when the son of David, the son of Abraham, should be dead. The line should end. And yet the line continues in his resurrection. Why include all this stuff? Well, I want to tell you a couple things real quick. Here's the primary reason. First reason is so we can see God never stopped. God never stopped keeping track. God wasn't aware of what, it was never a time when God wasn't aware of what was happening in the history of Israel. 
And yeah, there's an exile in there. And yeah, there's some sin in there. And yeah, there's some problems in there. And yeah, there's some challenges. But God is always at work. But secondly, God is at work sometimes in the mess. Notice those women that are listed there? Did you catch their names? Let me tell you real quickly about a couple of those women. There's four. One of them isn't named, by the way. There's four women. First comes Tamar. Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law, a Canaanite woman whose husband died. So he married her to another son. Then he died. Starting to wonder what's going on here. And then she dresses up as a prostitute and gets Judah to impregnate her. Okay. Uh, I was listening to a commentary guy talking about Matthew. He goes, Luke seems to be the gospel that everybody uses for their children's pageants. And I don't know why. Tamar, Canaanite daughter-in-law of David uh, of Judah, who becomes the mother of Judah's successor, Perez. And then there's Rahab in verse 5. Rahab is another prostitute. Rahab is a prostitute living in Jericho. She's not just a Canaanite. She's a Canaanite in a city that Israel is about to conquer in Joshua chapter 6. Excuse me. And yet, she believes that God has given them the promised land. And so when Joshua comes in, you know, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. They walk around the walls, fall down. You know, everybody knows the story of Jericho's walls. Israel is ordered to wipe out everybody that's in Jericho to kill everyone except for Rahab and her family. And Rahab is incorporated into, it says in Joshua 6.24, that she was brought into the fellowship of Israel. We don't know how Matthew knows that she marries this guy named after a fish, salmon. Um, but uh, it is pretty funny, by the way, that Nashon, the guy before salmon, his name means snake, and then salmon doesn't mean fish. But um, anyway, uh, we, d we don't know how she knows that he marries salmon. And she's, you know, marries salmon sounds weird now. Uh, but uh, we don't know how that happens. We, he, she doesn't appear in any other genealogies. Matthew's basing this on a genealogy in Ruth chapter 4, um, which doesn't mention her. And then that gets repeated in First Chronicles, and that, that doesn't mention her. But somehow Matthew knows that she's there. And, and she becomes the father of Boaz, and Boaz appears in the book of Ruth. He's the, Ruth is yet another Canaanite, a Moabite. All right, so Tamar's a Canaanite. Rahab's a Canaanite. Ruth is a Canaanite. And she, her, her, she gets married to the, the son of Naomi in Moab. They left Bethlehem. They go. They get married. He dies. His name was Disease, so that figures. He dies. Um, he, he, then she comes back to Bethlehem and gets rejected by the first guy that has a claim to marry her, and she marries Boaz. Then we get the biggest mess that God is working in. Because then we read about David in verse 6, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Her name was Bathsheba. She doesn't even get named in the genealogy. Now, she was a Jew. She was from Judah. Um, however, she was married to a Hittite general who David had killed so that he could cover up the fact that he had gotten her pregnant before her husband had a chance to be with her. And then the kid died. 
She's got a tragic life. And yet her son Solomon, the prophet Nathan, calls him Jedediah, the beloved of the Lord. Yeah, Jed's named after Solomon. So we should just call Jed the wise. But if he starts amassing 700 wives and 300 concubines, then we've got problems. Anyway, these four women, there's a mess. Canaanite women brought into the genealogy of the Messiah. How can that possibly be? Doesn't the Messiah have to be pure? Doesn't it have to be a complete Jew? How could we possibly bring in uh, female? Uh, isn't this a, the, the, I mean, isn't there commands against the Canaanites being in the congregation of Israel? And then what about Jeconiah? All right, verse 11, the son of Josiah. He's actually the grandson of Josiah. Um, what a mess he is. He manages to reign for all of three months and then spends the rest of his life in exile in Babylon. Well, why would we want to claim him? And he's in the line because, well, he's the actual direct descendant of David. See, see, God's always at work, but the way that he works, sometimes it's messy. And I think there's a reason why God works in the mess instead of making everything perfect and neat and kind. Would you like to know what I think it is? So that we can see him at work. If everything was symmetrical, everything was perfect, everything was always the way that we expected it to be, we could very easily just say, well, it's just natural. It's just the way it is. But when there's a bump, when there's a thing that doesn't fit, when there's something that isn't, in, and yet somehow God works it out for his purposes, we're always so much more thankful when that happens. It's so much more beautiful in Japanese, uh, in Japan, they have a, a, an art form called kintsugi. Um, kintsugi is the repair of broken vessels with precious metals. You ever want to look at it? It's a fascinating art style. You take a broken piece of pottery and you fuse it using gold or silver or electrum. And once it's bound together, its brokenness is what makes it beautiful. It is its asymmetry. It is its, it is its, its non-perfection that brings beauty. So Jesus is at work. God is at work. And let me leave you with this one. Right? What a qualifier Joseph gets. He's Mary's man. That's his title. Right? Abraham, father of nations, great name. David, the king. Jeconiah, uh, the, after the, the, the ruler of the deportation, the exile to Babylon. Joseph, Mary's guy. The husband of Mary. Andre Marios. He can't even get his own name. He's just Mary's man. And yet... I would actually argue he has the most glorious title of all. Because to be the husband of Mary was to be the caretaker of the king. Our Joseph is the hero of this story. Now, Luke's gospel, it's all Mary all the time. Joseph just occasionally shows up. He doesn't talk. He doesn't do anything. He's just around for the ride. 
It's all about Mary. But here, it's Joseph. Joseph is just this beautiful man. What he does for the Messiah, no one else could do. But we're going to talk about him next week. I want you to reflect on your mess today. We read those generations. We read all that narrative. We've got all this stuff going on. And you say, what's the application? How is God going to use your mess? You say, I'm broken. You can be mended. You say, it'll never be the same. You're right. But God is at work. In you, through you, for you, by you. And we are not called to be perfect. We're just called to walk. Would you join me in a word of prayer? God, why you chose to move Matthew to tell the story he way, the way he tells it, we can only glimpse. But through all of history, you gave us hope in the mess. Things can get dark. I'm not sure they get Old Testament very often with us. But you can be glorified in the darkness when we turn our hearts, our minds, and our efforts to your glory. We take the step and we walk. May you be glorified in our midst. May we know you better through journeying together. May your spirit work in us. We pray this in the name of the son of David, the son of Abraham, the Christ of all the world. In the name of Jesus. Amen. My brothers and sisters, go back to the mess and see God's glory.